singing this morning. You may be seated. Amen. Good singing indeed. As a dad, I always have a wry smile because you know when they practiced, how they practiced at home, and with at least Drew and Nate, they always finish all of their practices. I don't know if you other parents that have children that are musical do this. They always add their own little thing at the end. And in the early service, I saw just the crease in Nate's lips, like, I think I'm going to do it. And I'm like, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And I was confident in this hour, right up until the very end, and there was a little sparkle. You couldn't see it from behind the lectern or the, the stand, but there was a little sparkle. And I thought, don't do it, don't do it. Jason knows what I'm talking about, right? Like, don't do it, don't. But anyway, uh, I'm glad he didn't. So, And I also will say this. Um, Long ago, I had a philosophy. People that like nuts in their cookies are a little nuts themselves. But clearly, Edward has dropped the hint. I mean, he was so excited in the first hour. I mean, so legitimately excited. He announced it twice. He said we were having cookies tonight. He said we're having cookies next week. And I thought, man, oh, man, how much do you love cookies? And the answer is apparently quite a bit. Uh, with nuts in them, yeah. Uh, in the early hour, I said, I usually just drop hints and say, I like no-bakes. I don't need you to make any no-bakes because Jessica was in the first hour and she gave me the wink like I'm getting no-bakes this afternoon. So I don't need any more no-bakes. Those are my favorite cookies. Uh, I don't know if Santa likes them or not, but I sure do. And in our house, I play the role of Santa. So uh, anyway, take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 13 is where we are this morning. We come to the close of this wonderful, wonderful letter to the Hebrews, this book that we have studied 13 chapters in, and we now have a very clear understanding of what we need and what we need to know in truth. So let's read the first six verses. I'll pray. And I will say this, it will seem in the reading of it that the writer is all over the place. And the reality, what I want you to understand and know is he's not all over the place. He's tying together the proof of who, he, of who Christ is and the proof of what Christ does in us. And we'll look at that in just a few moments. Let's read verse number 1 down through verse number 6 here in Hebrews chapter 13. The Bible says, Let, love, let brotherly love continue. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember them that are in the bonds, as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity, as being yourselves also in the body. Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Father, help us, I pray, as we come to these closing thoughts of this powerful book. Help us to understand the superiority of Christ in us, the proof of that, and how we prove it. And we understand the practice in the practical today. Bless in this hour, I pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. On the back of your handouts this morning, I've given you the outline of the entire book of Hebrews that we have studied to this point. We come to the close of this rich and wonderful New Testament book, and here we find the word better again. Better has been the word over and over and over again that we found throughout these 13 chapters of Hebrews, and it is where we've drawn our idea of a superior Savior. The word appears over and again with reference to our Savior, Jesus Christ. It tells us that Jesus is superior, not only to Judaism, which was the direct context of the writing for the reader, but He's superior really to everything. He truly is our all in all. The writer gave us the superiority of Christ's person, purpose, position, and promise in chapters 1 through 4. He is God who came to earth to die so that He might become our Redeemer for those who believe. We then were taught how Christ is superior in His priesthood, in His principle, and in His perfection. The comparison was to the Levitical order of Aaron in the priesthood, and He compared and contrasted that to the eternal priesthood of Melchizedek and His order. In chapters 8, 9, and 10, we are shown the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and we noted that the sacrifice of Christ is superior in its pattern, in its purification, and in its effective power to save us. The blood of bulls and goats could not save us. It could not atone truly for our sins. The vicarious atonement of Jesus Christ is accomplished in the shedding of His blood. It was the final section of chapters 11, 12, and 13. The practical side of these truths become evident. The principles laid out now become effective in our practice. In chapter 11, we have faith, very evident. If we want to have Christ as a better thing for us, chapter 11 and verse 40, then He has to be our Savior. In chapter 12, it's not just that his people are superior, it's that his path, the journey he has us on. There is the path of Christianity, the path of chastening, and the path of consecration that we all walk. Well, that brings us to our final chapter, and that is that he is superior in his proof this morning. As you look at your notes and you understand that is our thought, that is what we are studying. And as we study it, we then ask the question, what proof? How do you prove Jesus is your Savior? Well, I I said the right words. Okay. Are saying words what saves you? And I'm not trying to get too deep theologically. The answer is yes, it is the prayer of faith that saves. It is that asking for repentance and the process of asking Jesus to become our Savior. But what I'm saying is, is it just merely the recitation of words? I was recently in a, in a setting where I heard liturgical prayers given, and I'm glad for those in that place who knew Jesus Christ as their Savior because the liturgical prayer doesn't save anyone. It is the heartfelt desire to have Jesus Christ as our Savior. How can you prove you're a follower of Christ then? Maybe we could ask it this way. How is following Christ superior to following that which is dead in religion? The proof is threefold. We start this morning by understanding that we are to employ His love, number one. The verses that we read, as I said, can sound a little bit like the writer is kind of shotgunning a bunch of stuff in at the end. If you're not careful, that's how it sounds. 
I mean, he talked about loving the brotherhood, entertaining strangers, worrying about those who were suffering in bondage, caring about our marriage and the marriage bed, and then making sure that we weren't covetousness. It kind of sounds like he's saying, all right, let's just scoop all of this into a basket and make sure you get it right. But that's not at all what he's doing. What he's saying is the proof of Christ as your Savior or the proof that Christ is in your life is that every area of your life will be affected. Everything will be changed. Judaism was national, not familial, yet he starts here by telling us about brotherly love that should continue. Grace brings us into God's family, and the love of Jesus Christ is the love of God. It changes how we think and how we act. It changes who we are. The employing of the love of Christ begins, letter A, through hospitality. I think differently towards others. How I think about others changes. The phrase brotherly love here is the word Philadelphia. Now, I don't know if any of you have been to Philadelphia lately, but it is no longer the city of brotherly love. It is a city of epic violence, it seems. I read an article just recently of a gas station owner in downtown Philadelphia who has hired armed guards to make sure he stops being robbed. Can I tell you where else I've seen that? When I travel to the third world countries of this planet. I remember going to El Progreso, Honduras, and our missionary, Matt Goins, brought my wife and I to a restaurant, and Jessica was terrified when we went into this restaurant because the armed guards were out front with their AK-47s. And Matt said, oh, don't worry, Jessica. That means it's safe here. Brotherly love is gone in that city. So what do we understand of brotherly love? Well, brotherly love is encouraged here. He says, let brotherly love continue. Do you know that within the family of God, we are brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ? What he tells us is start with those saints around you that you know. The Bible has many passages that talk about doing good to the household of faith. Timothy is told by Paul that is true. Paul told the Galatians it is so. Our responsibility begins doing good to our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Listen, if you are part of a church body and you don't even like the people in that church, find a new church. Find somewhere where you can have some Philadelphia, some brotherly love. But by the way, if you go to another church and you can't find brotherly love, and you go to another church and you can't find brotherly love, the problem is likely in the fact that there's no proof of brotherly love in you. We are to be compassionate as we employ the love of Christ. It begins with the household of faith, the brothers and sisters that we have in Christ. But verse 2, we find it flows outward to strangers. It goes from the saints to those who are foreign to us, strangers. He says, be not forgetful to entertain strangers. The word entertain here has the idea of accommodate for, make room for strangers in your life. Do you know there's other people that will only rub shoulders with people of faith? He says here, listen, that brotherly love, that love that you have of Christ, as you employ it in your own life, you have to sometimes go outside of the four walls of the organized church. Church, after all, is not an organization. It's an organism. And that organism goes out into the real world as the body of Christ and finds strangers to them. 
That might be in door knocking, it might be in gospel blitz, it might be in your own efforts at your workplace or in your neighborhood or in your family, of sharing your faith. Entertain them, accommodate them with the love that you have. Finally, in verse 3, it flows to those whom we might naturally avoid. Now, I think the context directly here is that we are to remember them that are in bonds as bound with them and them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. I think he's talking about Christians who have suffered and have been imprisoned because of their faith in Jesus Christ. But I think there's also room for us to understand there are ways that we can demonstrate the love of Jesus Christ, ways that we can employ it in hospitality to those that we don't even agree with. People that we would naturally avoid. I don't know how many of us in here would say, hey, you know what, Pastor? Sign me up to go down to the local penitentiary this week and make sure that I can share the love of Christ with them. But we ought to. We ought to be open to those who suffer adversities, those that suffer addictions and affliction. We ought to be open to helping those who might even be of the most sinful sort of our race. We find a progression here in employing the love of Christ through hospitality. We start with saint, we move to those who are strange or foreign to us, and then we understand those who are not exactly like us or in a different condition of life from us, perhaps even those who are sinners. We employ the love of Christ in our social relationships, but letter B, we also employ the love of Christ in our sacred relationship, that is at home. At home. Again, the proof here is that Christ's love dwells within me. All of the principles from chapters 1 through 10 have now become practice. It's practiced by faith. It's, it's practicing the grace of God as we walk in that. And now it's practicing the love of Christ. How do we prove that we love Christ? We prove it by starting with those most intimate Relationships. If we were to follow the progression, then if this is consistent and accurate, it is saints, strangers, sinners. And then he says, but go even into your own house and your spouse. Exercise the love of Christ. Isn't it odd that often we can be more kind in our words and more compassionate in our actions to those that we have very little to do with, but with our own spouses, it gets really hard sometimes. They know us. Uh, I like to say it this way. I say it a lot in our marriage counseling. We're getting ready this Saturday to start another marriage counseling. There's another wedding coming. I think there's like three or four that are on the way, but Melon and Dylan will start. And they'll hear me in one of the sessions say this. Dylan, I called you Dylan, didn't I? Yeah. I ca- <laughs> this is why you don't go off the cuff as a pastor. Melanie and Dylan. <clears throat> there you go. I got it right, and now we don't have to laugh about it, right? But at some point, I will say this in the process. Josh and Coral, I got that right, are sitting back here. I just married them in March. The the process is this. You getting married allows them to see you ugly. And of course, the initial reaction is, oh, I'm not made up. No, 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 I mean ugly. That's part of being married. And he says here, marriage is honorable. There are two implications in this verse about how we employ the love of Christ in our home or at home, and they refer to loyalty and purity. 
Marriage is honorable in all. Honorable means valuable and precious. It is close, a closely guarded thing. We, uh, in other words, pay extra attention to every detail of what makes it successful. Because God is honoring it, we should honor it as well. Men, how well do you honor your wife? It's Christmas time. How often do you have to refer back to the notes in your phone as to what she's put on her Christmas list? Do you know what she wants? Do you know who she is? How honorable is marriage? I said in the early hour that Jessica put on her list this year a red cardigan and a burgundy cardigan. And then I watched her getting dressed as she came to church and she had a red burgundy cardigan on. I'm like, how is that on the list? She's not here. She can't defend herself now. All I got after church was, I hope you bought it. (laughs) Nicely, Keith. She said it nicely. (laughs) Ladies, how well do you know your husband? If marriage is honorable, then we, the participants in marriage, must live up to the esteem that God puts on marriage. Husbands and wives, I hope you never tell your children how terrible it is to be married. It's such a chore. I mean, I'm just slugging it through one day at a time. Only by Jesus' help do I make it. I hope that's not how you talk about marriage. Because your kids will not see it very honorable. It'll be something they don't want to enter into at all. Or if they enter into, they're always looking for the back door to get out of it. He goes on and says, the bed undefiled. Now, I'm going to be careful because there's little ears in here. But not to worry, there was little ears in the first hour and they were belonging to my family. The phrasing here means that the bed is pure. There are no lustful thoughts outside of marriage and there are loving thoughts only within the marriage. Undefiled means free from debasement, free from deformity. And I will be clear, the bed here means what you and I, husbands and wives in here, think it to mean. There is a sacredness to the sexuality within the bonds of marriage. We ought not be afraid to say that. It is pure. It is right. It is proper. The fact that both marriage and its bed have been under assault and have had aggressive attempts made to be redefined by our Congress and by our political masters does not change God's original design for it. Now, I will also say this from this passage. What you do in the privacy of your bedroom as a husband and a wife is your business. Don't ever bring anything else in to that sacred time that would defile it. Men, that means we guard our eyes, and ladies, it means you guard your hearts. The whole of the present world philosophy of transgenderism, homosexuality, pornography, and every other adulterated abuse of of the marriage bed should be both resisted and rejected by the one who employs the love of Jesus Christ. That's what this passage says. 
The bond that you have as a spouse, as a husband or a wife, is sacred. Here's what John Phillips says in his commentary of just the word undefiled. He says, horrible consequences await those who abandoned his, God's standards of sexual purity, disease, guilt, psychological disturbances, insanity, and even suicide lurk in the way of those who abandon his codes. Why do we live in a morally bankrupt country? It's because marriage is no longer seen as honorable and the bed is no longer entered into undefiled. The Bible is clear. You didn't know you were coming for that this morning. We employ the love of Christ through hospitality. We employ the love of Christ at home. And let her see, we employ the love of Christ in our heart. You see a very broad to narrow reasoning that the writer is giving to us. He's just given us 12 chapters, and what he's trying to do is draw us down ever closer to the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter is your heart. Look, if you can be hospitable to the wide world and you at home can show the love of Christ, then you ought to be able to master your heart. But that's the hardest place to have the love of Christ. Very often, Christians just fake it until they make it. <laughs> that doesn't work. He says in verse number five, let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have for he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. He literally compares or puts on the, the measuring balances the material things of the world and the eternal things of God. I'll never leave thee or forsake you. You can employ the love of Christ to overcome any covetousness in your own life. That's what he's telling us. Contentment cannot come from material things. They will never satisfy your heart. Covetousness, the word used in verse number five, means the love of money in particular. I'm reminded of the old story of a millionaire who was once asked, how much money does it take for a rich man to be satisfied? The millionaire replied, just a million more than I have. <laughs> That's how most of us approach money. We're never satisfied with what we have or what we earn or what God's entrusted to us. We always want something more. It's a matter of the heart. By the way, contentment goes far beyond mere, the mere monetary world. It goes deep into the heart of man. That's why verse 6 is the key, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. The heart of the matter is that you cannot do anything in yourself. The love of Christ has taught us we are nothing in ourselves. We are everything in him. Thus, the Lord is our helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. The quote here is of a direct quote from Psalm 118 and verse 6. It's a psalm of the Messiah, and so it applies to us in the New Testament age as well. There is no reason to ever fear, for God is our helper. It doesn't matter what the temporal circumstances are. A heart stayed on that truth, settled in that truth, will not fear what happens in this temporal realm. I'm reminded of the woman who once came to Dr. Moody, D.L. Moody, great preacher of two generations ago. And he, she said to Dr. Moody, she said, I have found a promise that helps me when I'm afraid. It's Psalm 56 in verse 3. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. That's a pretty good psalm, isn't it? I've used it many times with folks who might struggle with fear or have own self-doubts or self-loathing. 
I do like Mr. Moody's reply. Here's what he said to her. I have a better promise than that. Isaiah 12 and verse 2. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. That's a better promise, isn't it? It doesn't mean the other one's wrong. It's Bible. It's very good. But perhaps for us who know Christ as our Savior, we can employ the love of Christ in our own life that when our heart begins to condemn us, one of the greatest passages in 1 John is 1 John 3 and verse 20. It says, when our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. Oh, what a great verse. It's employing the love of Christ. Employing the love of Christ in our hearts at home and through our hospitality is the superior proof of Christ in us. Next, in his proof, we embrace his leaders. <coughs> Some of you just coughed. <laughs> I don't like those politicians. Whew, man, I'm glad you said that, because he's not talking about them. The teenagers are like, yeah, I know. Sometimes I have a hard time trusting my parents. Well, actually, here he's not talking about them. He's talking about me. Your pastor. Some of you just went, okay, I'll be back at the third point. Think about the Jewish reader of this. Think about the intention of it, and then the purpose, by the way, in the practical here and now. The Levites and the priests had so corrupted Judaism that by the time Jesus was walking the earth, he routinely had to expose and revile their corruption publicly. The Jews did not love their spiritual leaders because their spiritual leaders were predators. They were looking to take advantage of them. They were literally, in the words of Jesus, devouring widows' houses. Can I make a suggestion? You should never be part of a church where your pastors are such people. That's what the Bible is going to tell us here. Pick up our reading in verse number 10. We'll skip after six, uh, we'll skip, excuse me, uh, in uh, verse 7, not verse 10, verse 7, 8, and 9, and then we'll read verse 17 and verse 24. Read with me. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow. Considering the end of their conversation, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, be not carried away with diverse and strange doctrines, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. In other words, it's not the outward manifestation, it's the matter of the heart. Down to verse 17. Obey that have the rule over you. Submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give account, that, may, that they may do it with joy and not with grief. For that is unprofitable for who? Not me. I did that on purpose. For you. Why should you care and embrace the leader, the pastor or pastors that God will place in your life? The answer is because... They're helping you become profitable to Almighty God. And look down at verse 24. Here it is again. Third time this little phrase is used in this one chapter. Salute all them that have the rule over you, and all the saints, they of Italy, salute you. Did you know this morning that living your faith in God's grace for His glory actually strengthens me? 
Really? I, I, I didn't know that. Now, can I tell you, if you decide to live for God because it helps me, that's the worst possible reason you can live for God. You're missing the whole point this morning. We just talked about employing the love of Christ in your heart, in the depths of your soul for your benefit. But part of that, the outflow of that, is recognizing authorities that God places in your life and that they are there for your good and for your benefit. As we observe first their walk, letter A, we understand what we are embracing. Or maybe we could better say whom we are embracing. The writer tells you to be part of a church body that has leadership who faithfully deliver the word of God and follow the will of God. That's what he says in verse number 7. Remember them which have the rule over you, who, here's the qualifier, have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow. They are walking in the will of God, in other words. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 11 in verse 1. Be ye followers of me, even as I am also am of Christ. In other words, Paul said, I'm following Jesus. Your job, since I'm your pastor to the Corinthians, is to follow me. By the way, if Paul ever stopped following Jesus, whom should they stop following? Paul. That's why he gives to us verse 9. Be not carried away with diverse and strange doctrines. If they're not truly having a walk with God that they ought to have, you ought not be walking with them anymore. A pastor's life should be one which can be emulated. Now, some of you might have just heard me say immolated. Immolated means to set something on fire. And I have no doubt there's a lot of people on their way home (laughs) set their preacher on fire for that day or for that week, right? I'm not asking you to immolate anyone. I'm asking you to emulate so long as I follow Jesus Christ. No man is perfect, and I certainly am not. But the agreement that a pastor makes with God to fulfill his duty is that he will faithfully execute a life of faith by God's grace. And that is for you to observe. I am greatly troubled when I hear, and I've heard it hundreds if not thousands of times, of pastors who have no relationship with their people. You should run from a church like that. If the pastor is hiding from you, he's hiding something from you. A pastor should be open. A pastor should be honest. A pastor is one that you should be able to get to know. The key phrase for the growing Christian is consider the end of their conversation. That means the purpose of their walk or what motivates them. Is that pastor animated or motivated by money? by power, by influence? Are they motivated by causing controversy or strife? And there's a lot of pastors that are like that today in churches. And I mean good churches. But they're animated and motivated at, I'm going to get this person in my church. I'm looking right now to find the person that I today can get with this message. Good gracious, run from that church. That is not somebody who's motivated by the proper thing. Now there might be preaching that I do that gets you. If it does, so be it. That is part of my calling is to exhort you and to edify you and to encourage you into righteousness. But boy, you don't want to be a church that the pastor goes around bragging about, yeah, I got Johnny last week. Woo! I'm ready to do it again this week. Man, that, that is not at all what the calling on the man of God should be. 
Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter number 5. As you're turning there, I would remind you the motivation is given to us in verse number 8. What is the motivator for the pastor? He says there, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. That verse is not just dropped in there so that you can quote it someday. Yes. The immutable God, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. It is put there because that's what the motivator is for the pastor that you should be following in your church, the leader that you embrace. To Titus, here's what um, uh, Paul says and what he writes to that young preacher. He says, for a bishop must be blameless, Titus chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, or the pursuit of money in an ill-gotten way, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, or has his head screwed on straight, you might say, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine or sure standing both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers or those within the church who speak against Christ and those without the church who attack Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, we find another description of the kind of pastor you should observe their walk and follow. He says, the elders which are among you, I exhort who am also an elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock. Do you realize that's my job? I have two job functions. They're both found here in verse number two. They're also found in the book of Acts. Two job functions. Man, you have an easy job. Right. I, I've never pretended like this is a massively complicated job. It's very hard. The more people that we get and the more problems that we must intercept and deal with, it's a good thing, but that part gets harder and harder. But it's not complicated. In fact, if you were to look at what I do with my definition of my job criteria, it is really just twofold. Now, there's a lot of things that come out of it, but it's twofold. Feed and oversight. He says, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof. That's the management. Not by constraint, but willingly. In other words, nobody made me do this. You ever meet a man that is laboring in his position and hates what he does in the pastorate? It might be either that you need to greatly encourage him or you might need to find another church. But willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Verse 3, neither as being lords over God's heritage. It is not, this church is not my heritage. This is just my ministry. And by the way, God at any time could change what my ministry is. He's God. I hope he doesn't. I very much enjoy pastoring here. From the day that I planted it to this present day, there's never been a moment where I said, yeah, I don't think I want to do this anymore. I've loved what God's called me to do. I fully embrace it and engage it and am glad for how you all embrace the leadership here. But simply put, if there ever came a day where I was lording over you or I had to be convinced to do it, it's a troublesome day for us and we ought to find a new pastor. But being in samples to the flock, he says in verse 3, And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Can I tell you something? Unless you are a pastor or a missionary evangelist, verse 4 is not for you. Very few verses in the Bible can I say that. It doesn't mean that you can't aspire to be that, but that's what it means to be a pastor. Sounds easy. Try it. 
It may not be as easy as it sounds. By the way, the bigger the church gets, the harder it is for one pastor to know, to guide, to guard, and to give to each individual church member. It is imperative then that we always bring on or bring up in, from the church family into leadership men whose lives are consistent and Christ-driven. That's what it's telling us in these verses. It's very important to know. The proof of Christ in our lives is that we embrace godly leaders. We do so by observing their walk. Then letter B, we understand in verse 17, they watch. All right, turnabout's fair play. You watch my life, guess what I get to do? Watch your life. In fact, I'm watching out for your soul, it says in verse number 17. It's very hard to watch out for somebody's soul. I mean, it's very difficult. I cannot tell you how grateful I was when I was a young man for the pastor that shepherded my soul. I told Edward this morning, there's things that I'm trying to keep out and things that I'm trying to keep in, and the Spirit of God just keeps burdening me. I'm going to try not to go long this morning, but I will tell you this. I am eternally grateful for my parents, but I'm also eternally grateful for my pastor. Very many times in my hard-hearted and running nature, when I ran far from God, and there were days in the early, late 90s and early 2000s where if you had met Kyle Fannin, you would have said, there's no way 22 years from now he'll be pastoring a church I'm in. And I would have said I wouldn't be in the church that I was pastoring. But it was because of a consistent hammer, my pastor, who kept pounding on me, the nail. He kept watching my soul. And it was to my benefit, not my detriment, my benefit that he would say to my parents, Ron, Pat, I'm not sure Kyle's engaged in a really healthy habit right here. I'm not sure this is a good thing for him. And you say, well, that meddling pastor, you should thank God if your pastor comes and intersects your life and says, this isn't good for you. The prophet Jeremiah writes this in Jeremiah 3 and verse 15, and I will give you pastors according to mine heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. God's intended purpose in the New Testament age is that pastors would be an authority in your life. Look at what he says in verse 17 again. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourself. Ephesians chapter 5 says we submit ourselves one to another in the fear of the Lord. We're submitting ourselves therefore to God in the fear of the Lord. In that same passage there is context that we submit to God and therefore we can submit to one another. And here he says, obey them that have the rule over you, not because they're better than you, but because God has placed them in your life for your benefit. For they watch for your souls as they that must give an account. Did you know there's going to be a day for every person that's a member of this church that you and I will stand together before the Lord Jesus Christ? I don't know when it will be or how it will be or what it will look like, but I know that there will be a time where I will give an account. And it goes on to say in this verse that they, that's me, your pastor, may do it with joy and not with grief. 
When a pastor comes into your life, when a spiritual leader comes into your life and says, Thus saith the Lord, and then says, And you should stop, or you should start. Take that as the voice of God if it's from the Word of God. I'm being very careful here. I'm not saying, just listen to Kyle. I'm saying if it's a godly man or woman, but particularly for a pastor and a leader in a church who comes into your life, if they are telling you something, wake up and do it. Because there's a day of joy for you or there's a day of grief for you. I think it's interesting. I will be giving the account and either I will be joyful in that day or I will be sorry in that day. Lord, I'm sorry. I, I tried. I tried to tell him what was right. I tried to tell him what was wrong. I mean, I gave him your book. I wasn't perfect. Lord, you know my life. You've already examined me, but they didn't listen. I can't even imagine. Now, take that and multiply it times 300 people in our church, or if we keep growing, 500 or 700. I mean, the weight of ministry is not an easy thing. I'm not bemoaning it. I'm just noting it. The sad reality today is that many believers rebel at the idea of ecclesiastical authority in their lives, and it's likely because of the abuse by that authority that they have experienced in their life, maybe from a pastor or a church or a denomination. The Bible here is telling us you should embrace having someone to whom you have to answer. It brings an additional layer of accountability for you on this earth. I would caution you, if you are in a church or are ever part of a church, even if it means it's this church where there is abusive dictatorship authority and it becomes the normal operation, leave. Leave quickly. But also observe another church their pastor, and quickly become part of it because believers are fish. They are not meant to survive long outside of the pond. A church body is the place of belonging for a believer in Jesus Christ. Letter C, embracing the leaders means making them welcome, and I don't need to spend much time on this. The word salute in verse 24 says to enfold them with your arms. Can I tell you, there's maybe four or five church members that I would like hugging me. My, my love language is not physical touch. In fact, of the five love languages, that is my sixth love language, okay? I am not a big physical touch guy. I like it when Jessica hugs me. Uh, Jessica Fannin, let me be careful. We got a lot of Jessicas here. I like it when Jessica Fannin hugs me. I like it when Nate Fannin hugs me. I like it when Drew Fannin hugs me. I like it when Luke Fannin hugs me. I like it when Ron and Pat Fannin hug me. I like it when Gary and Nona Wilt, my in-laws, when they give me that. Those kind of embraces are great. What I'm talking about on the salutation here is to welcome them. A pastor should always be welcomed into your life, is what he's saying. Salute them rather than shunning them. Proof of Christ's superiority is seen when we employ His love, then when we embrace His leaders, and finally when we enjoy His life. Verses 10 through 16 show us the life that we can enjoy. And I will hasten along here. The Bible says we have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. In other words, those temporal worshipers, those religionists, they've got, they don't have what we have. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore, Jesus also, 
that he might sanctify or save the people, with his own blood suffered without the gate. Let us, and I want you to notice that in verse 13, and we'll notice that phrase again in verse 15. It's the invitation we have here. Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach, for here we have no continuing city. There's nothing for us on this earth, but we seek one to come. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But to do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. The writer closes with the deep satisfaction we can draw from the eternal life that we have been given. He closes with the effect of Christ's life on our life through salvation. We enjoy Christ's life first with purpose. We have a spiritual worship, which means we have a purpose that is greater than this world. In verses 13 and 14, he says, let us go forth. In other words, we come to Christ in salvation. Outside of the religious constraints, outside of any rituals, we come to Him personally in relationship. But he also teaches us that we are continually drawing nearer to Christ in that relationship. It's a constant process of going back out and being near to Him. In verses 15 and 16, instead of let us go forth, I put in your notes, let us tell forth. It really is let us show forth. Let us go forth, let us show forth. From our lips, we show forth praises to Jesus Christ. We sing of His goodness in gratitude to Him. We give thanks to His very name. A wonderful reference to Psalm 69 and verse 30 as well. Our deeds also show forth His power in verse 16. Do good, that's benevolence. To communicate, that means to offer or to transmit to other people His goodness. Christians who do not enjoy the life of Christ today is generally because they've never purposed in their heart to live for Jesus Christ. They've never made it a matter of worship. By the way, those are the most miserable people that you will ever meet. Those who have gone outside the camp, in other words, they've understood at one moment that there was a salvation in Jesus Christ alone. But equally so, from that moment on, they want Jesus to do everything for them, and they do nothing for Jesus. They don't care about the sanctifying process. They're the most miserable people you ever meet. They know the truth, but they're not purposed to do the truth. They may have found purpose, but they refuse to live it. Enjoying his life with his purpose, and then let her be by prayer. How do I truly enjoy the life of Christ? I, become in, I come into communion with him. Pray. Verse 18, pray for us. Who was the writer of Hebrews? I don't know. I think it was Paul. But people can make arguments as to other people. It doesn't matter. Whomever it was says, hey, I need you to pray for me. Pray for us, for we trust we have a good conscience in all things willing to live honestly. But I beseech you the rather to do this, that is pray, that I may be restored to you the sooner. I put in your notes, prayer is in God's will according to God's word, allowing for God to work. That's what prayer is. 
So we find in verse 18, wrong motives and sin in the life of a, of a believer are both hindrances to prayer. You cannot pray for the wrong thing to consume it upon your own lust, James says. Here he says, look, we have a good conscience in verse 18, and we've done all things in an honest way. We live honestly. So I know that I can rightly ask you to pray for this thing, and the proof will be that God will answer your prayers. Have you ever had a prayer answered? And what a great proof it is of our salvation. Well, I don't know, it's just luck. You roll dice enough, you'll get a seven, Pastor. (laughs) Maybe. The writer knew that his life was clean and that he harbored no hindrances to prayer. And he had a good conscience to ask for prayer and to see it done. How do I know that? Because verse 19 shows us that evidently prayer does change things. He literally says, if you do this, I'm begging you. Beseech means to beg you to do this. Pray for us so that I can be restored the sooner. It's evident that prayer works. One author said it this way, prayer and its attending forces are as much a part of the universe as are the forces of gravity and magnetism. That's true. But that's not how we treat it. We treat it like Santa Claus. Or our lucky horseshoe. In some mysterious way, not fully explained, even in all of the pages of Scripture, prayer has an effect upon God and upon what happens in this life. Why, pastor? Because God so designed it. May I also add this. God is always willing to work. But very often he waits for us to become earnest about the matter and ask him for it. That's important. Finally this morning, we enjoy his life in praise. It's not just with purpose and not just by prayer, but it is in praise. Verses 20 and 21, now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is a benediction, one of the great benedictions in all of scriptures. But it's a benediction that encapsulates everything we've studied in Hebrews. Now, some of you are thinking, why didn't you just start with that? You didn't have to preach all 13 chapters. You could have just preached this benediction. It encapsulates everything we've talked about. God is so wonderful that he does this for us. He wrote two verses to summarize everything he's just told us. And you say, you did that because you're a pastor. Listen, I didn't write this book. You don't want me writing this book. You want me reading and then delivering this book. That's all you want me doing. Our praise in this life and the enjoyment of this life that we have in Jesus Christ is because first of God's peace, I put in your notes. This is chapters 1 through 4 of Hebrews. The peace of God comes only through the person, purpose, position, and promises found in Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the only place you find peace. Provision in verse 20, in the latter half, after the comma, where it says, now the, peace of God, now the God of peace, comma, 
shows us what Christ provides in His role and in His redemption. What has He provided for us as our Good Shepherd? Well, here's what He told us He provided for us as our Good Shepherd and that Great Shepherd, as He's called in verse 20. Back in John chapter 10, let's walk through a couple verses as we close our thoughts down this morning. In John 10, in verses 2 and 3, Jesus says, But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. Down in verse 9, we continue, and Jesus is sticking with the good shepherd theme and teaching on that. He says, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved, and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay lay down my life for the sheep. In verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all. No man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Oh, what a provision we have in that great shepherd, as he's called here in verse 20. But then there is perfection. Chapters 1 through 10 taught us the principle. But chapters 11, 12, and 13 taught us the practical. How are we made perfect? It is in faith, by grace, through love. Chapter 11, chapter 12, and chapter 13 of Hebrews. It is interesting, the phrase, make you perfect, as it's written in verse 21, is a translation of one single Greek word. Most of you don't know Greek. It is katartizo, and you can tell that I am not great at Greek. But that one-word phrase would have been used in the ancient world this way. A doctor using that word would have have used it within the context of setting a broken bone. A fisherman using that word would have set it within the context of mending a broken net. A sailor would have used that word in the context of repairing and preparing a ship for voyages on the seas and keeping him safe. And so what does it mean then that we are praying in verse 21, a benediction praise, make you perfect. The picture is that our Savior will equip us and repair us and restore us and make us useful again for His glory. That is the proof that Christ is in us. The perfection here comes from our Savior equipping us to live the fullest life that we can while on this earth. By the way, this benediction ought to be your daily prayer. Here maybe is how we could pray it with a little modern parlance and personal application. God, make me perfect in every good work to do your will. Work in me that which is well-pleasing in your sight through my Savior, Jesus Christ. You pray that prayer daily, and you will have very few days of regret on this earth. In closing, the writer 
closes his letter with an encouragement to read his letter. How self-serving. Well, look at verse 22. I beseech you, brethren, suffer the word of exhortation. Now, some of you are going to take that home and say, every time you see me in church from now on, Pastor, I'm ready to suffer the word of exhortation this morning. Hope they don't say it to you tonight, Brother Mike, with you preaching. Well, we have suffered the word of exhortation. We've studied 13 chapters. That took me 14 and a half years to get the bravery to preach as a pastor because it's hard. But we have the truth. The takeaway from today and the takeaway from the series should be this. The life you have in Jesus Christ is far superior to anything that you could ever devise and far superior to anything that religion could ever deliver. He is supreme over everything. And He's made the life that we can live superior to anything that we could ever imagine. The principles of the first ten chapters of His sovereignty, service, and sacrifice create the practical living that should be the people of God in the path of God with the proof that God is their God. question then this morning is, do you see Jesus as superior, as supreme? Or is He just another thing in the busyness of your life? Father, help us, I pray, as we close. I thank you for the word of God. It is sharp. 